0: Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I'm Catherine Brobeck.
1: I'm Kemper Donovan.
0: And this week, because it is the spookiest time of year, we are doing a double header of short stories in celebration of Halloween.
1: Mwah. <laughs> In our first year, I remember we did a doubleheader Halloween episode, one of my favorite of our episodes, when we covered Philomel Cottage and the Dressmaker's Doll. Mm-hmm. And this year, we are covering two equally, I would say, spooky stories. The first is The Last Seance, and the second is The Lamp. So let's focus on The Last Seance first counterintuitively. Catherine Brobeck, can you tell us a little bit about the publication history?
0: So, yeah, it was first published uh, in the U.S. in November 1926 in something called Ghost Stories Mm. under the title The Woman Who Stole a Ghost. And then in March of 1927 in the U.K. in The Sovereign Magazine under the title The Stolen Ghost. And then it was published in book form in the Hound of Death collection in 1933. And we've mentioned the weird publication history of this before, but to recap in case anyone missed it. Um, the Passing Show, which was a magazine, had been doing you know some sort of spectacular relaunch, resubscriber event and had a coupon campaign where for however many coupons and several shillings, readers could choose from six books. And they were published for the magazine's readers by Autumns, which was the magazine's publisher. Then it appeared in Booksellers in February of 1936, published by Christie's. Normal publisher Collins Crime, and then later it shows up in the U.S. in book form, all the way in 1961 in Doubleson and other stories. So kind of a convoluted history, although an interesting one,
1: a very interesting one, and one that has one more major twist that is a mere week or two old. Very exciting to be able to add some late-breaking news to our publication history here. But there is a new collection of Christie titles called the. Last Seance and other stories, and they are billed as supernatural stories, and they just came out a couple of weeks ago, I have to imagine, in time for Halloween, so great minds think alike, apparently, and The Last Seance is the titular story in that collection, and The Lamp also does feature in the collection. Not surprisingly, it includes many of the titles that are in The Hound of Death, and we talked about that when we covered The Red Signal, which was the first story, technically second story that we covered in The Hound of Death since The Witness for the Prosecution is also within that collection, but many of the stories there are supernatural, and I think this collection just makes a bigger deal out of it because there's not an assumption, I think, among Christie readers that when they're getting a Christie collection of short stories that they're getting supernatural stories, so it's kind of putting readers on notice that, hey, this is Supernatural Christie, and it actually features a couple of Poirot and Marple stories as well well. Interesting. I I know The Dream is in there and a few others that we have covered. So just really interesting if you want to check that out. Perhaps you are reading these two stories out of that new collection. You know, it's a different side of Christie. And I think that it's not totally surprising to me that The Last Seance would be the titular story in the collection. I do think that the two we chose to cover for our Halloween episode both have something to offer. As we also discussed when we first talked about The Hound of Death, it is very much a mixed bag (laughs) collection. There's, There's a lot of different stuff in there. So these are two titles that we thought were not only appropriate for our Halloween episode, but just also worth an earlier review than some of the other stories within that collection, which we will, of course, cover all of sooner or later.
0: Right. We've talked about this before. Some of the stories in the collection lean towards being hard to spend much time talking about. I don't think that goes for either of these. And I will just also preface this by saying I think both of these stories are extremely creepy.
1: They really are. Yeah. I mean, this is why this is our Halloween episode. We don't normally think of Christy as being capable of the atmospherics to pull off a creepy story, but these two stories show that you underestimate Agatha Christie at your peril because she creeped me out.
0: All right, so Kemper, what is the plot of the last seance? It certainly sounds sinister.
1: It sounds very, very sinister. I wonder if actually just before we get into the plot, we should talk a little bit about what kind of a story this is because this one in particular the last séance is a very specific subgenre of story and it's the only one of its type I believe within the Christie of which is really interesting this actually comes up in Julius Greens book which is one that we've talked about quite often curtain up right. he writes about the grand guignol tradition Mm -hmm. And just really, really brief, I promise this isn't going to be another Harlequinade monologue, but really brief history on what that is. You know, this is a theatrical tradition originating from the Grand Guignol Theater in Paris. It's an actual theater that put on, and now I'm quoting from Julius Green here, an ever-changing program of evening entertainments consisting of a collection of graphically bloodthirsty and macabre one-act plays, occasionally interspersed with comedies by way of light relief. Interestingly, apparently Noel Coward once even contributed to one of these evenings with a comedy, naturally. (laughs) Um, Well,
0: I would have been much more curious if it had been a bloodbath.
1: Yeah. Also per Julius Green, Grand Guignol's preoccupations would have resonated with Christie's own interest in the occult and her own literary experimentation with the genre, including a few published stories and a a number of unpublished ones. So I think we can see elements of it in other stories, but this is the only one that really is just an out-and-out, grand guignol ode.
0: I will note, if it's not prefaced with that, you really aren't going to see the end coming.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's really true. This will make a lot more sense when we get to our macabre end, but just also to try to date... When Christie was coming up with this, this is also really some fascinating detective work that Julius Green does in his book. Apparently, while Agatha Christie was on the final leg of her 1922 Round the World Tour... With Archie Christie, which we've talked a lot about in earlier episodes, she stayed in New York while Archie was up in Canada with her American godmother, a woman named Cassie Sullivan. And it is Cassie Sullivan's name and address, along with the date 9th of November 1922, that appears in handwriting on the front of a typed one-act play script, The Last Seance. Julius Green theorizes that she wrote this first as a play and I believe him because I think this story makes sense much more as a play than as a short story. I think Watching this would be more powerful than being told about it. Perhaps not. I think that's an arguable point, but I think
0: we can talk talk about the fact that some of it is written like stage directions.
1: Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. In fact, what does he say? The scenario works much better as a short play, however, and I believe that it was in this format that she first envisaged and wrote it as an exercise in the then popular theatrical genre of grand guignol. In a letter to her mother from Melbourne in May 1922, Agatha writes, "I've been rather idle, but have written a grand guignol sketch and a short." story. Yes, I agree. I think that a lot of the dialogue reads as though it was almost lifted out of the one-act play that she wrote, and then put into a story with a little bit of narration sprinkled for sense. (laughs) And she kind of left it at that. So I think that explains why it feels like that. He writes, the dialogue, which in the story simply appears to have had speech marks put around it, works well when spoken, but not when read. And the highly theatrical denouement, when briefly described on the page, goes for nothing. We don't know whether the play was submitted for performance, but in those early days, Agatha found it a lot easier to get her work published than produced, so this is likely to have accounted for the change of format. Enough preamble. Let's talk about what actually happens in the story. Catherine Brobeck, take it away.
0: Raoul de Broglie stands in the parlor of a fancy flat in Paris, talking with a servant, Elise, about his fiancee, the beautiful, if increasingly sick and pale Simone, who is one of the world's greatest mediums. And Elise insists to him that when the marriage begins, Raoul has to promise that Simone will stop the seances because she's convinced. That all of these seances, all of this being a medium, it's just destroying Simone. It's harmful to her. She needs it to end. And Raul assures her and then goes to Simone.
1: It becomes swiftly clear that Raul is a scientist, or at least science-minded, and has, in fact, been encouraging these seances in order to study the science behind them. Because Simone is no fraud. Remember, this is Supernatural Christie here. Hers is a real, transcendent power. One that not just can conjure voices or memories, but has recently started to produce actual corporeal materializations. Particularly with regards to a Madame X. That would be E-X-E. Madame X. Who has lost her child, Amelie. Madame X is going to be the customer, so to speak, at the last Mm -hmm. seance that Simone is performing before her marriage to Raoul. And it really has to be her last seance, because as Catherine noted, she is just increasingly frail. She's exhausted and terrified. But she agrees that You know, she she will do this one last task, and then everything will just be hunky-dory. Hmm, I wonder if something's going to go awry.
0: (laughs) Right, and also this, probably right about here, is where we really notice that there is some stage directioning going on. Because she sort of appears in a room, and then, like, exits stage left. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's... Odd. Her entire relationship with Raul um, becomes odd because it really does seem like she enters the room, he says his bit, exits the room to like set up a new scene.
1: This is something I think is actually handled more effectively in the televised adaptation that exists for this story, which we will discuss afterward. But it creates this kind of duplicitous effect in Raul where he's clearly a lot more psyched, (laughs) no pun intended, about (laughs) This seance when Simone isn't around than when she is. And he's like, oh, my sweet, my dear, I know you're so tired, but just one more. And yes, then everything will be wonderful. And when she's not around, he's like, oh, this is also fascinating. I can't, I can't wait to see what happens. And we we get the sense that perhaps he is not as invested in this being the last séance, as Simone is.
0: Well, he also makes a strong suggestion that. Well, yes. Well, obviously, she can't be taking these incredibly lucrative paying gigs anymore with these sad rich women. Um, she could still work with scientists, of course.
1: Yeah, he, and he even dangles the wealthy patrons in a way that, you know, she's like, oh my God, are you seriously suggesting that I still act as a medium with them? That is not going to happen. He's like, oh, no, 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 of course, of course, I wasn't suggesting that. If we read between the lines, it's very clear that that's exactly what he was doing. It's made much more apparent in the television episode in a way that I actually found effective. I thought that was a good minor change, or perhaps it just comes alive, as I was saying, when you're watching it as opposed to reading it that subtext well, I, mean, that I think we, is easier to observe. But you know? I mean
0: it's it's not even subtext it's text because yeah, he, yes. he he overtly lies to Elise. Yeah. So, you know, he's not a good guy, our Raul. No. And unfortunately for Simone, she does not realize that. She refers to Madame X as this terrifying, large, black figure, and she just, like, sees her in her nightmares, and she doesn't want to face her again, and she's excessively demanding, and when we meet her, Simone is not there, it's just Raoul, and she is a giant bully in morning clothes. Raul capitulates to her, basically, and Simone finally shows up, somehow arrested. And, you know, she does agree to it, but, like, she is dithering a little bit on this front. She, she goes back and forth about, like, actually, you know what, maybe she's not going to do this. I mean, there's a sort of back and forth both, both between Simone not wanting to do it and then Raul seeing Simone's reaction to Madame X and saying, actually, you know what, we should call this off. At this point, even though Raoul is cynical, there is still this trepidation of even going through with this. Because one of the things that Madame X says is, well, I have to be very, very sure that you people aren't frauds. She checks behind the curtains. She checks the windows. She checks everything. And she also insists on tying Raoul to a chair, which this seems healthy and good. At this point, both Simone and Raul are also terrified, but they've agreed to go through with it um, out of partially guilt because, again, keep in mind, Simone is a real medium.
1: I found it a little hard to believe that Raul would agree to have his hands bound Merely because he, you know, is indignant at the suggestion that they're frauds. And he's like, okay, fine, I'll go through with it. I'm like, "Mm." this is feeling a little convenient for purposes of the story. Like, would anyone really submit to have their hands tied? Especially given that there's this whole conversation also that Raoul has with Madame X that if you touch this apparition that she's creating out of, you know, ectoplasm. I mean, the word ectoplasm is actually used. Yeah, um, you're
0: going you're gonna to wound Simone.
1: You're going to wound the medium, because Raoul actually did touch this sort of apparition of Amelie in the last seance that they had with Madame X. And, and
0: she didn't just provide him with a garden gnome um, shot on Polaroid pictures on a global jaunt?
1: This is Amelie. With the discovery of a simple childhood treasure, she begins a quest to fix other people's lives. And perhaps her own as well. You know, he realized that that hurt Simone, so he says we have to be very careful not to touch her, and then here he is agreeing to have his hands bound so that he can't do anything when this is happening. uh, Touch hard to believe.
0: Yeah, although it's implied that Madame X is massive and mean. So. Right.
1: She gets her way. I know. And it's interesting too, because I think you described her the way that she's described by Simone in the story, which is she is so big and black and her hands. Have you ever noticed her hands, Raul? Great big, strong hands as strong as a man's. Ah, <laughs> um, right. But to be clear, the black here is referring to her clothes. She's wearing black morning, yeah,
0: clothes, morning. Of course, because right.
1: her child is dead, but that is the way it's described. I just wanted to be clear on that. So, Raul is tied to the chair. <laughs> and again, clearly nothing is going to go wrong here. And
0: well, obviously this- also because Simone is like basically behind the curtain.
1: Yeah, she's like behind a veil. She's practically like can't even sit up, let alone stand at this point. She's already so weak. But hey, let's continue on. So Simone summons Amelie as she does. This vapor emerges out of her. We get this ectoplasmic adventure here. This is the vapor that Raul has warned Madame X not to touch. But as the little girl becomes more and more corporeal, Madame X lunges for her. It's because she is longing for her daughter, right? She doesn't care that Simone is shrieking Mm, from behind the curtain.
0: Maybe. I mean, there's something so vicious about this that's...
1: Oh, yeah. Well, I kind of think the underlying theme here or preoccupation of this horror story is the horror of a mother's love for her child, because it knows no mercy or rationality. And Madame X does not care if she murders Simone in cold blood. And she even says, what do I care about your medium? Because Raoul says, you're going to kill her. She doesn't care. And Christie actually has a great passage in which Simone kind of explains to Raoul why Madame X actually scares her so much. And it's not just because she's big and wears black clothes. It's because she's a mother. Here's what she says. I know now what I am afraid of. It is the word mother. Simone, that would be Raoul. There are certain primitive elementary forces, Raul. Most of them have been destroyed by civilization, but motherhood stands where it stood at the beginning. Animals, human beings, they are all the same. A mother's love for her child is like nothing else in the world. It knows no law, no pity. It dares all things and crushes down remorselessly all that stands in its path. <laughs> that is the thesis statement for this story.
0: Yeah, it's certainly one view of motherhood. It's
1: an interesting view of motherhood, especially apparently if she was writing this in and around 1922, this would be when she was a relatively new mother having gone on a year-long round-the-world cruise without her child. And maybe she was feeling a lot of complicated feelings about motherhood.
0: Yeah, or maybe she just wanted to write a really terrifying story.
1: I mean- <laughs> <laughs> totally. She's got all sorts of different ways of portraying motherhood throughout the Christie canon and it actually, you know what it really reminds me of uh, the most is, it, in a weird way, even though it's a different portrayal of motherhood but there are similar feelings I think at the bottom of it, appointment with death right? Where we, Yeah. Yeah, where we have that horror show of a mother, Mrs. Boynton, I mean that again is motherhood warts and all, but in any case, this horror show of a mother just wants to be reunited with her daughter at all costs and when Simone Shriek And Raoul fights against his constraints. Madame X explains she doesn't care about the medium, she just wants her dead daughter, and she rips this corporeal being away. Because it seems to still be attached, you know, by some sort of a wisp to Simone or some sort of an ectoplasm cord. So she severs that cord and leaves a shrieking Simone from behind the curtains. And Raoul eventually, just through sheer force, is able to snap his constraints. And then what happens, Catherine?
0: Elise has come into the room because of probably all the, you know, shrieking. Madame X has absconded down the stairs and is gone. So you pull back the curtains, and um there's blood everywhere. And just everywhere. Just, like, splattered everywhere. I mean, we are, uh, yeah, in a, in a horror show. Elise is like, well, I guess it was the last seance because, you know, our beloved Simone, she's dead. Um, And then this is where also this story becomes really weird because... If this were on stage, you could draw that moment out for some time, but because it happens in the course of like three sentences in the story, it goes from describing a bloodbath basically to them walking away and Elise begging Raul to explain to her what had happened because the remains of Simone are half of her.
1: It's, well, she's, quote, half her usual size. She's all shrunken away, which right. she's some macabre version of what she used to be. We're also told that her final scream ends in, quote, a horrible kind of gurgle.
0: Yeah, lovely. (laughs) So,
1: yeah, I mean, this is what Julius Green was talking about. This would be effective in a Grand Guignol uh, performance. Yeah,
0: it definitely definitely would. But in two paragraphs, it becomes one of those things where you think, did I miss something here? Yeah. So uh, the theory here is that the science that was being investigated and whatever happened was that essentially... The apparition is part of Simone's essence put forward in order to create this sort of projection, whatever, astral plane business. And that by literally ripping it away, you're ripping out Simone's essence.
1: So you get your bloody horror show at the end, which is kind of the point of Grand Guignol, right? Like, they want the bloody corpse. And boy, is this a good reason to have a particularly weird and bloodied and interesting-looking corpse. Yeah. Mission accomplished for the one-act play. Like, I'd actually really like to see this one-act play. I know.
0: I was not expecting this story to end uh, in such a grisly manner.
1: Yeah, Well, let's talk briefly about the televised adaptation, because this is one of these odd little one-off Christie adaptations that we get here and there, usually in the 70s and 80s. (laughs) It's kind of like straddling that period where like before then, the Christie adaptations were really few and far between in the 70s and 80s. I feel like is when the estate started testing the waters before we got to the established (laughs) series that we get in the 90s and beyond. So it's not surprising to me that this dates from the 80s, but there was a uh, horror anthology series called Shades of Darkness, which aired in both 1983 was the first season, there were seven episodes in 1983, and then there were supposed to be three episodes in the second season, there only ended up being two episodes, and The Last Seance is the second of those two episodes, and they didn't air until 1986 and months apart from each other. So clearly things were going awry at that point, and the series just ended after that. But they actually have pretty high production value, and some of the other stories in the anthology series are adapted from writers such as Edith Wharton and Mason Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Edith Wharton has some fantastic ghost stories. Of course, we turned, as we always do, to our good friend Mark Aldridge about this, and he tells us that this is actually an ITV series, Shades of Darkness. It was on Granada Television, which is like a kind of subsidiary of ITV at this point. It was uh, also shot entirely on film, especially constructed sets. It looks really good. It's funny, he mentioned it had much in common with the BBC's run of ghost stories for Christmas in the 1970s. To my American eye, it immediately reminded me of some of the latter day Twilight Zone episodes, excluding the current rebooted series. I'm not talking about that. And also Night Gallery. It, just right. re- it reminded me of those kind of classy, higher end, more kind of thrillery horror series that's about an impending sense of doom and...
0: Well, do you know, it, g- it gave me a little bit of like a bootleg television Nicholas Rogue vibe. Don't Look Now, sort of like 70s psychological horror, except like a little bit of a lower brow. Things that have a giant sense of dread.
1: It's all about the sense of dread. And it's very effective in this episode, which sticks very closely to the story. It comes in earlier on the story because when the original, when the text begins, this is the last seance with Madame X, and there have been earlier seances with Madame X. And in the episode, we start with the first seance. That Madame X attends, and then there's a second seance. Jean Moreau plays Madame X, I think, pretty much to perfection. She was the standout for me, but all of the actors are quite good in it. It does look good. It's set in Paris, 1933. That, of course, is the same year that the story uh, originally came out via the Hound of Death collection in autumns. (laughs) As we said, it's a little bit of a torturous path there for publication. My only real problem with it actually was the ending, (laughs) because we don't get our blood and gore in the end. And perhaps that's in keeping with the fact that this is a little bit more of a high-end kind of horror anthology series that is more about the dread and the suspense and not the granguignol of it all, um, because what happens in the end is that the apparition of the little girl appears and she grabs the child away. And I did appreciate, it's not specified in the in the story, but we see her grab this apparition and then we see Madame X running down the stairs and her arms are empty. There is like the sound of a child laughing, but I think we get this sense from the story too. Things are not going to work out very well for Madame X. It's not like she has her daughter back. This is no. sort of a lose-lose Proposition here. <laughs> you well, know not I mean?
0: Speaking and speaking as somebody who's read enough Stephen King, do we know what Amelie actually is?
1: I'm thinking this is a pet cemetery situation at I best. Know.
0: I know. I know scars of my childhood with pet cemetery. Because all we know from Amelie is that when she appears, all she can say is, Mama, Mama, and like gesture for her. Real, real Pot cemetery vibe there.
1: She's a demon. We, I know you and I, and I would imagine many listeners of this podcast, also watched the Buffy episode where they tried to bring her mother back from the dead.
0: You have no idea what you're messing with. Who knows what you actually raised? What's going to come through that door? No, I know. It'll be her. No. Tara told me that these spells go bad all the time. People come back wrong. In fairness, they also... Bring Buffy back.
1: And how'd that work out for them? (laughs) Actually kinda well.
0: I mean
1: ended up. Ultimately well.
0: (laughs) Ultimately it ended up okay. Ended up okay for humanity. I don't know how well it ended up for Buffy herself. Yeah.
1: So in this televised adaptation, in the end we get Simone kind of shrieking, and Rebel breaks his bonds and he runs to her and she's swooned and she's dead in his arms. And there are white roses and white candles in the room and they turn red. And that is it. (laughs) There is no blood. There's no shrunken body. No, nothing. But it is, I think, somewhat in keeping with what they were doing Well, right. again,
0: that's why I said there's, like, the 70s horror vibe. Like, stuff like, even though this is in the 80s, stuff like Don't Look Now or even, like, Picnic at Hanging Rock, which is kind of like this cosmic horror thing. You know, very much these movies of slow-building dread. And so, like, I can appreciate that. I thought it had nice production qualities, actually.
1: It did. And the other thing I want to shout it out for, actually, is the scenes that feature Madame X alone in her house, among her daughter's things, just sitting there, are completely silent. I think Mark actually mentions this, too, that the production makes good use of silence because you get just the utter desolation of her existence which is a nice contrast and just sort of an explanation. Not that we necessarily needed it, but I think it's effectively done for why she goes to the lengths that she goes to. And it's worth mentioning, if I didn't before, I'm not sure that I did, that when Christy was making notes for the last seance in her notebooks, this is again per Julius Green, actually, the original title for the story was The Mother. So again, this is all about the mother. And I think that the adaptation did a good job of casting an excellent actress and then portraying her grief and her madness really convincingly. And that's what this story is all about. Right. I think that is the last seance I believe we are ready to transition into a story perhaps even creepier. This one really creeped me out, actually.
0: Well, it had even more Stephen King vibes, if that makes sense.
1: Yes. Yes, it does. Catherine, what are we covering next?
0: We're covering the lamp. And Such so an innocuous
1: title, isn't it?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, because I was like, well, this can't be so bad, right? So it was first published in that book form um, in the Autumn's Press Edition of The Hound of Death in 1933. It was not published in the U.S. until that 1971 collection, The Golden Ball and Other Stories. And interestingly, there's not a clear record of it being published anywhere, In short story form prior to its um, inclusion in The Hound of Death.
1: And as I mentioned, it does appear in this new collection, The Last Seance and other stories. I would actually like to just read the opening paragraph of the story. because It's a really
0: good opening paragraph.
1: It's really good. And then I'm going to do something really evil. And I'm going to read the opening paragraph of Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House, which is truly evil because that might be one of the best openings ever Uh (laughs) to any story, but it's just interesting. They have similarities, even though each author is very obviously doing her own thing with her own style. But I immediately thought of The Haunting of Hill House when I read this opening, which is... Even
0: though this predates it by quite a number of years. Oh, of
1: course. Christy ain't copying anyone. Nope. (laughs) Except when she did, as everyone does, because there's nothing actually original. (laughs) So here's how the lamp opens. It was undoubtedly an old house. The whole square was old, with that disapproving, dignified old age often met with in a cathedral town. But number 19 gave the impression of an elder among elders. It had a veritable patriarchal solemnity. It towered grayest of the gray, haughtiest of the haughty, chilliest of the chill. Austere, forbidding, and stamped with that particular desolation attaching to all houses that have been long untenanted, it reigned above the other dwellings. In any other town, it would have been freely labeled haunted, but Wayminster was averse to ghosts and considered them hardly respectable except at the appanage of a, quote, county family. So number 19 was never alluded to as a haunted house, but nevertheless, it remained year after year to be let or sold and to be let or sold is in capital letters. And then just real quick, because why not? This is the opening to the haunting of Hill House. No live organism can continue for long to exist sanely under conditions of absolute reality. Even larks and katydids are supposed, by some, to dream. Hill House, not sane, stood by itself against its hills, holding darkness within. It had stood so for eighty years and might stand for eighty more. Within, walls continued upright, bricks met nearly, floors were firm, and doors were sensibly shut. Silence lay steadily against the wood and stone of Hill House, and whatever walked there... Walked alone. (laughs) Creepy! Both of that, I mean, Christie's is charming. It's much more charming. Shirley Jackson is so many things. Charming is not one of them, and no. I never had any interest in being charming. And good for her. Pretty, you know?
0: yeah, <laughs> not in any version of her life or her nope. writing. I don't think to give nope. any interest in being charming. No,
1: exactly. But really great opening. Christie's opening is a really great opening for a haunted house tale. Like The Hound of Death gets so much criticism for supposedly poorly written stories, and some of them in it, as we said, are definitely hard. To read, but this one I think is a powerfully written haunted house story.
0: Right. And one that, even though it's directly set up to be a haunted house, you're taken for a moment about the idea that maybe it's not quite a haunted house story.
1: Yeah. Well, because it's so upfront about it. And that's what's so creepy, too. I mean, usually in haunted house stories, there's a little bit of a fake out, right? Of, oh, everything's fine. But from Paragraph two, and then on we are told this house is haunted. We are told why and how, and it's horrible. We'll get to it in a second, and then we wait for something horrible to happen, and we don't have to wait very long, and it does, and it's horrible, and it's all very effective. And I think it's, I mean, its straightforward nature makes it that much more powerful. You know,
0: I mean, you know, the other thing obviously that it reminded me of oh, last night, I dreamt I went to Manderley again. Yeah, You know, that entire passage also is, of course, one of the most famous openings of a 20th century novel. There was Manderly secretive and silent, as it has always been, the gray stone shining in the moonlight of my dream, the mullioned windows reflecting the green lawns and the terrace. Time could not wreck the perfect symmetry of those walls, nor the site itself, a jewel in the hollow of a hand. And it's just like, oh. <laughs> it's just like,
1: uh oh. Uh oh. Yeah. Real estate is creepy. And we do know that Christy loves her real estate. This is not the first real estate focused story we've come across. So it's, it makes no. sense to me she'd write a haunted house story.
0: No. And I mean, I think that, you know, we're going to talk about Stephen King more, but like, think about both Pat Cemetery, which we've already mentioned in this episode, which is about a nice young couple buying like a really nice property, um, or The Shining. Yeah. Beware of overly promising real estate people.
1: And what's sort of at the center, and this is what's so truly evil about a lot of these stories, is that we're kind of presented with people who seem to be on an upward trajectory or who are trying to do well for themselves and trying to improve or have good and happy and fulfilling lives. And then the horror story is what makes that go completely in the opposite direction. You know, like what just turns that into
0: Also, and we can talk about this more later, but if you look at... Rebecca, if you look at The Shining, if you look at Pet Cemetery, if you look at Haunting of Hill House, if you look at this story, the people in it, these aren't like unsuspecting rubes. Everybody sort of is aware of their situation to some degree. And that's what actually ends up making the situation worse. It's like, oh, well, I kind of know what I'm going into. So it can't be that bad, right? And so you as a reader are also going along with these people. So let's get into the story. Here we have Mrs. Lancaster, who is this young widow. She's shown number 19 which you just read us about even though she's not told immediately about the history of the house she looks at the deal that she's being given and she's a smart lady and she says to the realtor okay (laughs) what's up with this house this has to be like a murder house right
1: exactly she's like okay what's wrong with it yeah no fool
0: no she's not a fool and that is the case in so many of the really great spooky house stories is the people are not stupid going into them
1: they're going in with their eyes open but there's this sense and it's subtle in this story but we can go on what's happening here mrs lancaster has a father she's a widow but she has a father and she has a young son so the three of them move into this house together and the young son is constantly dropping h's When he speaks or adding H's where they shouldn't be and his mother is constantly trying to correct him, which to me is this subtle indication that they come from a slightly lower class and that they're Mm -hmm. moving into this house because they're trying to better their lives. Right. and that they take the house because the house is on such cheap terms and she's not an idiot knowing why it's on cheaper terms but she takes the deal because they need a deal it's the only way that they can actually move into
0: yeah a house and like this. she and she's practical she's not superstitious
1: right and she's not dropping her H's either, by the way. no. Nor is her father. I mean, we perhaps get the sense that, and this really is subtextual, but it seems as though she and her father were from a higher class than her dead husband. And that when they were living together, they might not have lived in a place as nice as number 19 Wayminster, but now he has passed away and they have the ability to at least move into a nicer place. So they are. And it's just that hopefulness and this kind of resolute quality to Mrs. Lang. Kester, her eminent practicality. I'm going into this. We're going to do what we can. And you just know in a horror story, she is just going to get smacked right down and her life is going to be ruined for that because that does not fly in horror stories. And it's so cruel, you know, it's so cruel.
0: Right. I mean, she's doing essentially the right thing here. Yeah. Despite the story that she is Eventually told by the realtor because she gets it out of him,
1: she she really does have to reel it out of him, but she gets it relatively quickly. And who oh boy, it's a bad one. It's, it's really, really bad. bad, yeah, so this is what happened. There was a weird, lonely man who originally bought the house, and he had a son, a very small son, small boy. And they kept only to themselves. They never really left. The neighbors weren't greeted. No one spoke to the family. They shut themselves off. So that was a whole thing. And then one day, this father goes out to London... And it turns out that he's seemingly on the lamb slash guilty of some kind of terrible crime. We don't really know what it is, but it, it seems that he's caught when he goes out. And that this must have had something to do <laughs> with why he was shutting himself and his son off from all of their neighbors. And the police turn on him. But rather than be caught, this man kills himself, leaving his young son alone in the house, unknown To all of his neighbors, who at this point have trained themselves to have nothing to do with this house. And this poor little boy has also been told, under no circumstances do you go outside and talk to other people. Plus, he's just a little kid, so he doesn't really have the wherewithal to rescue himself from the situation in which he finds, which is that my father is gone and I don't know what to do. So the neighbors hear all this wailing and sobbing going on inside the house, but not knowing what had happened to the father, because again, the father doesn't talk to anyone, and not ever seeing the son, they do nothing. And honestly, I find that very easy to believe. (laughs) That that seems as if it could happen, and then eventually the wailing stops, because... Why, Catherine?
0: Because the small child has starved to death in the house.
1: Starved to death
0: in the house? Yeah. Amongst neighbors, because let's keep in mind that this is not a country house. They are in a square in town. So there are neighbors on all sides. So this child has starved to death, surrounded by other people, except nobody to get to him. And so now all these years later, the neighbors can still hear the boys sobbing in the night.
1: And this is how Christy conveys this information in such a Christyish, ish non-Shirley Jackson-ish way. Mr. Radish is the estate agent. Mr. Radish paused, and er... The child starved to death, he concluded, in the same tones as he might have announced that it had just begun to rain. And then Mrs. (laughs) Mrs. Lancaster very practically is like, and it is the child's ghost that is supposed to haunt the place? It is nothing of consequence, really, Mr. Radish hastened to assure her. There's nothing seen. Not seen, only people say. Ridiculous, of course. But they do say they hear the child crying, you know. Mrs. Lancaster moved towards the front door. I like the house very much, she said. I shall get nothing as good for the price. I will think it over and let you know. And then we skip to a new section and they're in the house. And this is where we as readers say, oh, no, 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 no. Get out of the house. Get out of the house. What are you
0: doing? Run the other way. Like, you should not have been so nonchalant about that.
1: Yeah. So what happens next, Catherine?
0: Well, again, undeterred, Mrs. Lancaster moves in with her son, Jeffrey, who is this curious and active little boy. And he's very interested in the house. And it's also very clear from this that it doesn't seem like he's ever been in this much space before. Yeah. Because he just, like... Wants to explore all these areas of like something he's never seen. And she also brings along her father, Mr. Winburn, who is far more spooked by the house than Mrs. Lancaster. And he routinely mistakes the sound of rain for the sound of tiny footsteps. And the household staff, too, are perturbed. One of the household staff gossips about how terrible Jeffrey's nurse must be because she keeps hearing Jeffrey crying in the night.
1: Even though then Jeffrey seems perfectly happy all the time, so right, it seems that probably not that is Jeffrey. Yeah, yeah. I'm like I'm, I'm like literally shaking my head as you're going through all this. Like, just get out, just get out. Um, all right,
0: leave the house. Yeah, just leave the house.
1: So one day, the ever curious Jeffrey asks his mother why she won't let him play with the other boy. That too <laughs> would be a good time to, without a word. Pick up your purse with one hand, take your child's hand with the other, and tiptoe out of the house. Anyway. She
0: does not do that.
1: She does not do that. And Jeffrey says that he has invited this boy to play several times, but the boy just kind of sadly looks at him. Sometimes he stares at him from a doorway while he's playing, and he just kind of wanders around. So that's cool. And little Jeffrey says, you know, I want to play May. That's the weirdest thing about it, and I feel bad for this other little boy. Mrs. Lancaster tells him he's making it up, but her father... Let's always trust the wiser, seasoned character in these horror stories as well. He tells the boy that he should work it out on his own. Like, he should figure out on his own terms how to include the other boy, because it sounds like this boy is lonely. And of course, Mr. Winburn believes that this ghostly boy is real, and that Jeffrey should just deal with the problem on his own, because he knows that his practical daughter is going to be no help in this area. And that's actually where we get the title of the story because his daughter chides him for indulging jeffrey in in this nonsense she says but it's such nonsense why don't i see it or hear it mr winburn smiled a curiously tired smile but did not reply why repeated his daughter and why did you tell him he could help the the thing it's it's also impossible the old man looked at her with his thoughtful glance why not he said do you remember these words What lamp has destiny to guide her little children stumbling in the dark? A blind understanding, Heaven replied. And he just goes on to explain that's what Geoffrey has. He has a blind understanding, which all children possess. It's something that they lose as they grow older and lose their innocence. And at that point, I'm rolling my eyes because I hate the whole sort of celebration of innocence and lack of experience in children as if growing up is something bad. But anyway, that's Although, what it
0: says. Uh, well, yeah. And so we should note that that's the Rubiat of Omar Khayyam, which is a Christy favorite. We've seen it come up before. Christy fave. Um, and I will also note that this is like real Dick Halloran and The Shining vibes here. I can remember when I was a little boy, my grandmother and I could hold conversations entirely without ever opening our mouths. She called it shiny. Swiftly thereafter these events, little Jeffrey is taken down with what appears to be consumption. It's a little suspicious all along that he is kept in the house. Like, he's exploring the house, etc., but he's, like, very much coddled, and then it becomes increasingly clear that he has some sort of respiratory ailment.
1: The doctor says he definitely wouldn't have had that long to live, no matter what,
0: yeah, so whatever it is, we're not given it exactly, but um he's fading away, even as a nurse and his mother take care of him, et cetera and you know the doctor interestingly tells Mr. Winburn that this is going to be the end. He doesn't really tell Mrs. Lancaster, which is interesting i feel like i'd want to know Mm -hmm. but in the sick room jeffrey when he is lucid is seemingly talking to someone else in the door so kemper what would be your takeaway from that
1: my takeaway would be to get out of the house (laughs) (laughs) right So, yeah, I mean, in the sick room, Jeffrey is seemingly talking to someone else who's standing again at the door, saying that he supposes now he can play. Mrs. Lancaster and her father are standing there, and they're terrified, and they all of a sudden hear two footsteps... Instead of one pair of footsteps, first of all, Mrs. Lancaster, who had never heard anything before, now hears, Suddenly
0: hears it. Yeah, here's
1: two sets of footsteps. And Mr. Winburn, who had been hearing the single pair of footsteps before, now hears two. And, you know, she knows what this means, and she turns back to her son, and her father keeps her from finding out what they both know at this point, which is that Jeffrey is dead. And that he has now joined his playmates, and the only humane (laughs) sort of beat that I think we get at the end of this is perhaps the notion that the footsteps are getting fainter and dying away for good.
0: Yeah, it is what's implied.
1: Yeah, I think there is an optimistic kind of button on this, which again is very Christy, very not Shirley Jackson, that these children in that they have each other Are now freed especially the first child who had just been languishing there alone and his spirit had been doing the same that now he can move on to a better place and jeffrey will go along with him it's funny there are now three adaptations of the haunting of hill house there's Mm -hmm. the very faithful 60s version which is a big favorite of many readers of the story
0: what does it take to convince you that the dead do not always rest in peace but some houses like hill house
1: a born bad and then there's the really interesting and also faithful perhaps in tone as opposed to plot recent Netflix adaptation we're not like any other family we're different because of where we grew up Hill House but there is the one in the middle (laughs) which is from the late 90s there once was a house a bright happy home Something bad happened. Now it sits all alone.
0: Oh my gosh, I had completely blocked this movie out, Kemper.
1: You all suffer from sleep disorders. My job is to
0: find out why.
1: What's the deal with the Adams Family Mansion? I gotta be honest, I don't get a real strong sleep vibe from this place. It's not good. I think the main reason why it's not good is that in the end, there's this whole idea that all these child spirits that had been trapped in the house are now finally at peace, or at least in a better position because of what Eleanor does. And it's hokey, and it's just so not in keeping with what that story is in any way whatsoever. And I think the Netflix adaptation managed to do something that was, one could argue, also a little bit hokey, but actually, I think, in keeping with... The mythology right. that Shirley Jackson created. And even though it's sentimental, I think it's earned throughout the series. I didn't think that adaptation was perfect, but I appreciated it. In any case, yeah, that's how this story ends.
0: It has so much in common with all these other things, right? I mean, we mentioned The Shining, but also The Sixth Sense, right? The Misha Barton mm-hmm. character, very similar, right?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, this is... It's, it's, a, not, it's
0: a trope, basically, it, at this point.
1: Right. Like, it's not even... It's two tropes. It's the haunted house Trope, but then it's also the dead child ghost trope.
0: Right. And there's a
1: lot of both, most of which, 90% of which, was created after this story.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's effective. I certainly get the shivers from this.
1: Yeah, it happened so quickly, too. This is a very fast story, but I think that's part of its power. Once they decided to live in the house, they're done. It's over. And they're going to pay the price. And they do, and we're done. Boom. It's effective.
0: I actually think it makes a nice companion piece to the last seance because they're talking about two sides of the same coin, right? The grieving mother in the first one and then the aftermath of that, I suppose, in the second one.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are both stories in which a mother's relationship with her child is central.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: You could make the argument that Mrs. Lancaster has to let go of her eminently practical ways in the face of her child's death, and she sort of becomes a believer, perhaps because she has to, because that's the only way she can make sense of losing her child, even if we don't believe in the supernatural elements of the story. And we're meant to. It's not that we're not meant to. I think we're absolutely supposed to, but I think there's a grounded reading of this story as well, in which she aligns herself with her wiser, kinder, gentler father's ways in her moment of need, because it's kind of the story she has to tell herself.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, I will just mention it again because I tying everything into a knot, but you know, we mentioned also Rebecca in regards to the creepy house thing going on here. But I mentioned Don't Look Now in regards to the tone of the adaptation of The Last Seance. But, you know, Don't Look Now is in fact a Daphne du Maurier novella and is essentially about what happens when you lose a child and go madly into grief and don't find reason. For anybody who's looking to, like, get a little bit outside of Christie, certainly always recommend going to go read some Daphne du Maurier.
1: I guess one could say that Mrs. Lancaster's way of dealing with losing her child is an improvement upon Madame X's coping mechanisms, isn't it?
0: Uh, well, we haven't seen what she does 20 days later. That's true. She could have gone completely mad and like be clawing her nails into the walls of the house. Yeah. Our listeners who want to spook themselves a little bit should definitely look into this.
1: Tis the season.
0: Tis the season, and we've given so many good recommendations in this episode. So Seriously, we can really really have a scare fest for this Halloween and pay homage to maurier and Jackson, and of course the Dame herself, the Christy. Grand Dame
1: herself. Yes. Yeah. All right, well, that brings us to an end of our double header Halloween spookfest of an episode. Hope you enjoyed that. And join us next time for our next novel. This is so exciting. It's a Miss Marple. Somehow it's only our fourth Miss Marple of our review, which is insane. But they are going to start. But I
0: think a lot of people are very excited about this one, Kemper.
1: Oh, my God. We've already gotten messages warning us. That we had better rank this one high. And I think we will, but I'm a little scared. What are we reading, Catherine? What will we be covering?
0: Oh, we are reading A Murder as Announced. Oh boy. I'm Me- excited. I mean you excited.
1: I, I need a new word because that's not even going to do it. One of the best Christie hooks. For a murder mystery, out of all the ones that she did,
0: and so we're gonna we're gonna hope that this is living up to our expectations. And you no, know, join us for that.
1: We shall see, and get a little dark marble if you need. If you still need a oh. little some some <laughs> chills and scares post Halloween, we'll be there with some dark marble for you. If you'd like to listen to even more of us, you can always join us on our Patreon site. We are at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. Our most recent episode is all about the Christie original play, Black Coffee. We had a really, really interesting conversation about that, which has so much to do with the Mysterious Affair at Styles. And, you know, we were touching on a lot of things that we discuss in our regular episodes. Um, You can also find us on Twitter at All About the Dame and Catherine at Brobcat. Our Facebook page is All About Agatha, and our Instagram handle is All About Agatha. And please take a moment to rate and review us. Wherever you're listening to this podcast, if you get a chance, it really helps
0: us out. And we will see you next time. Bye. Bye.